Now, now shall, shall I tell, tell of things, things that change? New being, new being out of old. Since, Since you, you, O gods, O gods, o gods, o gods created, mutable created mutable arts, created arts, mutable arts and gifts. Give me the voice. The voice. Give me the voice. The voice to tell the shifting, the shifting, the shifting story of the world. We've all been there. We've had the friends who are so deliriously happy with each other, so content and satisfied with the pleasure of each other, that they are nearly unbearable to be around for any length of time. And I don't mean those overly demonstrative couples, the ones who are almost panicked to make sure everyone knows how in love they truly are. And nor do I mean the calm, comfortable couples who've, over the years, come to a sort of equilibrium of mutual patience and compromise that feels more like a truce than anything else. No, I, I mean the couples who are just quietly, contentedly perfect together. They don't flaunt it. They don't parade their passion they just are who they are, and honestly, it's impossible to hate them for it. But you also know, deep down, that their relationship reminds you of what's missing from your own. There was a king named Sakes. Now, we don't know how he and his wife, Alcyon, met, or how long they'd been together but we know that they were utterly devoted to each other. They doted on one another. The bounds of love that held them so close together might as well have made them one person. They were inseparable. And, as you do when you're in love, they gave each other little pet names. She called him Zeus, and he called her Hera. Now, some say that this angered and offended the gods, though whether it was Hera or Zeus who took offense, it's unclear. But as punishment, we're told that Sakes and Alcyon were transformed into birds. The end. I admit it's not a particularly exciting myth, but at least it's economical. Now, when the poet Ovid was writing his Metamorphoses, he took the story of Sakes and Alcyon, and, as he did with so many others, he spent a little more time exploring how strong the bonds of love between the two of them really were. First of all, he did away with the whole idea of the gods being angered by those nicknames. In fact, he doesn't even mention it at all. Maybe he figured Sakes would have been more careful. He was, after all, quite familiar with what happened when you offended a god. 
Sake's own brother had offended Apollo, and he'd been transformed into an eagle as punishment. In fact, this strange event weighed so heavy on Sakes's heart that he resolved to go and consult with the oracles at the shrine of Apollo. This was no small undertaking, and the journey would mean many days travel by sea. Many days separated from the embrace of his wife, Alcyon. When he went to her, his heart heavy with this intent, her blood froze and her marrow was like ice. It wasn't just the separation that moved her so, though that gave her no pleasure to consider. No, her fears ran deeper, and she had good cause for concern. You see, Alcyone was no mortal woman. She was a daughter of Aeolus, the mighty keeper of the winds. Aeolus was one of the sons of Helen, not Helen of Troy, mind you, Helen with two L's. Helen was the father of the entire Greek nation, a son of Zeus himself. His birthright was one of power, and Aeolus was granted the command and power over all the winds. And as the daughter of the wind lord, Alcyon knew all too well the treacheries of the open sea. This is what she told her husband when he came to her with his plans. The sea is terrifying, and that sad image of the deep a little while ago I saw parts of a broken ship on shore, and often Upon gravestones yet uncarved, I've read the names of those about to die. Don't put your confidence in the wrong place, relying on your father-in-law, Aeolus, who keeps the storm winds locked up in his prison. And, when he wishes, he can calm the waves. For once they break loose and reach open seas, the winds are wholly uncontrollable, and earth and sea alike are unprotected. Indeed, they even vex the clouds in heaven and shake the lightnings from them by collision. The more I know the winds, I came to know them from frequent observations as a girl in my father's house. The more I know the winds, they frighten me. Even Alcyon's name is an omen of the dangers to come. Als means sea or salt in Greek, and kion means to conceive, literally to swell like the waves, or tears. She begged her husband not to go, but Sakes refused to leave off his journey, so she begged to accompany him. Maybe she thought that her presence might provide some safety, that her father's role and might would be respected, and the seas would look more kindly upon the vessel with her aboard. Or maybe she just couldn't bear the thought of being alone, walking the shore day after day, watching the clouds gather on the horizon, fearing the worst, hoping for the best. But her husband didn't share her worry, and to be fair, he didn't exactly dismiss it either. He wouldn't leave off his pilgrimage, not even for her, and he told her that the voyage would be too dangerous for her to join him, an odd persuasion if he was trying to set her mind at ease. No, he was to go and she was to say, and that was the final word on the subject. But he did make her a promise. 
Separation of any kind seems long to us, he told her. But by my father's light, I swear that if the fates permit, I will return before the moon has filled his circle twice. You see, Sakes, like his wife, was of Olympian descent as well. His own father was Eosphorus, the star of morning, the precursor of dawn. In Greek, Eosphorus means dawnbringer, that is, the morning star, which is to say the planet Venus. In Latin, the Romans called Eosphorus lightbringer, or Lucifer. And just in case I have to say it, this was a long time before the Christians associated the name Lucifer with their particular devil. But that's a digression for another time. At any rate, all of this is to say that the daughter of the winds married the son of the morning star. And for her part, the thought of him venturing across the sea cast a dark shadow over her heart, one that could not be lifted, not even by the brightest of his assurances. The more I know of the winds, the more they frighten me. The day of his departure, Sakes' crew made ready to leave with first light. And Alcyon, plunged into the depths of sorrow at his leaving, might have drowned him with her tears had her grief not overtaken her, and she swooned there on the shore. She woke in time to see him go. She watched as he waved to her from the deck, his upraised hand rising and falling with the swells, dwindling into the haze that rimmed the horizon, much as tears rimmed her eyes. At last, long after any hope of spotting him one last time was gone, she finally turned away and returned to her chambers to cast herself on the billowing sheets of her bed and drown herself in tears once more. Meanwhile, out at sea, on the ship, every man's heart swelled as the sails filled with the strong winds that would bear them on to their destination. Every heart, that is, except for one. Sakes looked back at the disappearing shore, and he felt the pang in his chest that bound him to Alcyon like a silver cord growing tighter and thinner with each ripple of the sails. He could barely breathe with the pain of it. And when the ship lurched and he heard the captain curse, Sakes looked up and he gasped. The sky was boiling overhead, darker still the waves beneath them, and in between, caught, was their ship. The clouds were churned by the wind like rolling boulders hurtling towards a suddenly frail little boat. And in an excruciating, interminable instant, the ship was destroyed. The sailors' skills fail, their courage sinks, and every wave seems to bring with it one more way to die. One sailor is unable to stop crying. Another calls a funeral a blessing. This one's in a stupor, and there's another who lifts his unavailing arms in vain to sightless heaven for help. One calls upon his brothers and his father, and one upon his home and family, and each thinks only of what they have left behind. But Sakes has only one word on his lips, the name of his wife. Alcyon.
He longs to see her again, but he is glad that she is spared this torment on the seas. Then the waves came crashing down upon the ship, and by its weight and overwhelming force plunged it right to the bottom. With it went most of the men, sucked down into the vortex, and fated not to breathe the air ever again. But some still hung on pieces of the ship, floating to the surface. And this is where Sakes calls upon his father and upon the father of his wife, but in vain. For now the name most often on his lips is the name of Alcyon. And while he swam, as often as the waves allowed him breath, he murmured Alcyon's name to them and to himself. But then the greater swells bore down upon him and buried him beneath the shattering surface of the sea, so deep that not even the bright eye of his father could find him. And Alcyon, alone in her chambers, unknowingly clung to her hope as her husband had clung to a scrap of wood before the seas claimed him. For days she sent up prayers to Hera, begging for the goddess to protect her husband, never knowing that he was already lost. And her prayers were a futile and irritating reminder to the goddess of the boundaries that even Hera could not cross. But still, Hera might do something for her servant Alcyon, show her some kindness, such as might still be available to her. If Hera could not provide protection, then at the very least she could free herself of the irritation of being petitioned to help someone who had already perished. But for that, she would need some help. And so the goddess sent for Iris, that daughter of Titans, the rainbow messenger of Hera, as Hermes is to Zeus, so she to Hera. Far off she goes, sent by Hera to a hollow mountain ringed with clouds and shadows and darkness. No ray of light from heavens, no noise of any living thing is permitted to penetrate the darkness and silence of the one who slumbers there. For this is the domain of Hypnos, the god of sleep. There, deep under the mountain by the shores of the river Leith, Iris came to the palace of sleep. Into his chambers she stole, her light dimmed but still brighter than anything in that dark realm. Even so, sleep barely opened his eyes, his lids raising and lowering again and again as his chin knotted on his chest. Finally, he roused himself sufficiently to regard his titan cousin and hear the command of her mistress. O oh, sleep, that gives your peace to everything, most tranquil sleep of all the deities, the foe of care, the spirit's gentle balm that soothes us after difficult employment restores our powers for the morrow. O oh, sleep whose forms are equal to the real. Order an image in the shape of Sakes to go to Alcyon in her chamber and represent the shipwreck that destroyed him. Hera commands this. And with that, her message delivered, Iris took her leave and fled the chambers of Hypnos 
before the heaviness of his kingdom and presence overtook her and weighed her down into sleep. Now, sleep has a thousand sons, and of these, Morpheus is the one most skillful in playing the human role in our dreams. If you have ever dreamed of someone, living or dead, a father or a husband, a mother or a wife, a brother or sister or lover or enemy or stranger or friend, then you too know the skill of Morpheus. It was he whom Hypnos sent into Alcyone's dream to counterfeit her dear lost husband and deliver that final blow. Naked he came to her, hair matted and dripping with seawater, rags and seaweed trailing from him as he approached the bed of the sleeping queen. His tears fell upon her cheeks as he leaned over her, cold and bitter with brine, and in a voice pulled up from the fathoms of sorrow, he spoke. Do you not recognize me, my love? Or have my features so changed with death? Take another look, recognize me now, and find no husband, but only your husband's shade. Your prayers, my Alcyon, went unanswered. I am now dead. Don't hope for my return. The cloud-gathering south wind seized my ship on the Aegean, tossed it high in the winds, and broke it apart. But yours was the name upon my lips as I drowned. No doubtful messenger brings this news. You hear no unreliable account. I am here uttering these words, the shipwrecked man who stands before you now. Shed your tears. Take up your garments of mourning. Do not let me go off to Tartarus, the place of emptiness, without lament. In sleep, in sorrow, the dreaming Alcyon reaches for her husband. He is almost there before her, just within grasp. But even as she reaches, she awakens, and he is gone. In a panic, she raises the lamp to search the floor, but there are no wet footprints. There is nothing. And the cold tears on her cheeks might as well be her own. And her heart breaks again, as it has broken so often in these past days, like the wave breaking itself on the rocks only to withdraw and shatter itself again. And so, too, her sense is broken, and she leaves the palace. Sometime later, she returns to herself, returns to her senses to find the cool waves lapping at her ankles as she wades along the shore. Her father's wind is cold in her face, the light of the morning star in the sky colder still. The water laps at her ankles, at her knees, at her waist. She feels the draw of the sand under her feet as the waters pull at her. But for the gentleness of the tide, she might have thrown herself in so that she could be reunited with her poor drowned love. But she draws back and paces along the shoreline, 
just another piece of driftwood cast up by the uncaring waves. Not driftwood, she sees, but here is planking, once straight and clean, now darkened by the depths, splintered by the waves and rocks and scattered across the sand. She raises her eyes and sees a pale shape drifting lazily on the early tide, and all breath leaves her. Then she is running along the shore to the jetty where her husband's ship had cast off so long ago. She races along the rocks, unmindful of the scrapes and cuts as she stumbles, rising again to run, her eyes never leaving that pale figure tumbling in the waves, tumbling over itself, revealing the broken form, the arms, the legs, a man. It rolls again, turning over, even at a distance she can see the face of her husband, long dead, long drowned. Her prayers have been answered, though it is a cruel promise he has kept to her, this bitter reunion delivered on the very waves that destroyed him. Down the breakwater she ran and threw herself into the arms of the wind as though she could reach him there, still tumbling far off in the waves. And suddenly, Alcyon was flying, beating the air with unexpected wings. That sad bird lightly skimmed the whitecaps, and as she flew, her long and narrow beak gave out hoarse cries. And when her new wings bore her to the silent, bloodless corpse of her husband, she embraced his cherished limbs and gave him a cold kiss with her hard beak. Some say he felt that kiss. Others say his lifeless body only rolled on the waves and that it was the sea that raised his lips up to hers. Either way, the gods took pity on these two lovers. At her kiss, he was transformed with his wife, and they flew away together on the winds. The earliest version of the Sakes and Alcyon myth, the one that predates our friend Ovid, it would have us believe that the gods were annoyed by the love the two had for each other, that they were offended by these little nicknames. I, I struggle with this. I get that the gods might be annoyed by the presumption, but I also don't see why it wouldn't have been seen as a sign of respect or honor to the gods. As I said earlier, Ovid doesn't include this detail, but as a much later source, I'm not inclined to rule it out just because it doesn't line up with my own sensibilities. So for me, the question is, why were the gods annoyed? Sakes and Alcyon were in love. This made the gods angry, and the gods turned them into birds, the end. But why? Why were the gods angry? And was it both of them who were angry, Zeus and Hera? It's hard to say. Hera is well known for her wrath. Even her husband Zeus bore the brunt of it from time to time. And it's not overstating it to say that 
She's been known to come down hard on someone who has displeased her. And honestly, sometimes her anger can seem disproportionate to the offense. And even worse, sometimes she vents her rage not on the one who deserves it most, but on the one who, it could be argued, is something of a victim of circumstance. Hera can be merciless. Witness her harsh punishments visited upon Zeus's various paramours. He manages to avoid any punishment just by virtue of being Zeus, but the women suffer. Maybe, maybe Hera was the one who took offense. Not because it was disrespectful for those two devoted souls to call each other after the names of the gods that they clearly loved and worshipped. No, maybe Hera punished them for the same reason that she was known to punish the various lovers of Zeus. It wasn't really their fault, if you think about it, but since she can't punish her husband, well, someone has to bear the weight of her rage, and maybe that's it. Hera's anger against Sakes and Alcyon is a misplaced frustration and anger against her husband. As the goddess of marriage and fidelity, the dalliances of Zeus must make Hera insane with rage. He undercuts the very fabric of her worship in being her identity. And maybe the fidelity and love of Sakes and Alcyon only underscored the gap in her own marriage. And despite herself, Hera couldn't help but punish them because, again... She can't punish Zeus. And yet, in Ovid, she is transformed into a benefactor. The prayers of Alcyon are a trouble to her, but only because it's impossible for her to fulfill them. And whether out of convenience, nuisance, or propriety, Hera sends Iris to deliver Alcyon of her misapprehension, to bring them both a little bit of closure in peace. It's interesting to note that the Palace of Sleep is on the banks of the River Leith. As you know from past episodes, the ancients believed that the land of sleep and dreams shared a common border with the land of the dead. In fact, Hades was sometimes referred to as the Lord of Dreams as well as the Lord of the Dead. And again, as you might remember, Hera was originally a goddess of the underworld in pre-Hellenic mythologies, sharing many traits with Persephone. So, though it seems like a somewhat roundabout way to deliver the news, Hera to Iris to Hypnos to Morpheus to Alcyon, it follows the natural alliances and affinities between Hera, the underworld, and the land of sleep. Now, Morpheus means maker of shapes, literally the maker of figures, and, as Ovid tells us, he is the one who is best at impersonating people in dreams. To the Greeks, there were two kinds of dreams, true dreams and false dreams. And as they pass out of the land of sleep and into our world, all dreams must pass through one of two gates, either the gate of horn or the gate of ivory. True dreams pass through the gate of horn. False dreams 
pass through the gates of ivory. In the Odyssey, Penelope waits at home for the sea to deliver her husband back to her once again, much like Alcyon pining away in her chambers. But conversely, the dreams that come to Penelope bring hope, and she wonders which gate they came from. As I understand it, thanks Wikipedia, the names of the gates are a play on words in Greek. That is to say, the Greek word for horn is very similar to the word for fulfill. And the word for ivory is an apparent play on a similar word, which means to deceive. So, see him there. Morpheus, roused by his father to undertake this mission for Hera, passing through the gate of horn, approaching his target, Alcyon, as she sleeps there in her sorrowful bed. And as he approaches, he draws out of her troubled mind the form and figure of her drowned husband, giving shape to her fears, molding himself out of the clay of her sorrow. And so all that he might present is true and trustworthy, as clear an appearance as his art will allow. And maybe that's another reason for his involvement. If Iris had delivered the message directly, would Alcyon have believed it? Without any proof other than the flighty report of a rainbow goddess, would her heart have refused to give up hope even then? No, she had to see for herself. She had to feel her husband's tears on her cheek. She had to smell the salt. She had to hear the brine bubbling in his drowned voice. She had to see for herself. And the message delivered. She had to believe. Her grief took her to the shore, and whether it was the hands of fate or the will of the gods, or even just the strength of the cord that bound them together, or just a coincidence, a fluke of weather and tides, Sakes came back to her as he had promised. It was a gruesome reunion to be sure, and it wasn't joy that drove her feet across the stones of the breakwater. It wasn't hope. No, her desperate madness was the engine that launched her into the waves to join her husband's corpse. And yet, at last, the gods showed mercy. There's a kindness here in Ovid that's missing from the earlier, older text. Instead of a curse, a punishment imposed, the transformation in Ovid is a blessing. It's a blessing for her to take wing and skim over the waters in which she had meant to end her life, to rise and fall on the currents of the air instead of the cruel currents below. And then, weighted down by sorrow even as she soars, Alcyon swoops in for one last kiss, just a peck, only to find the blessing has been doubled, like two waves splitting off from a single swell, each curling and sweeping along with equal strength. So too, Sakes joins Alcyon in the air, and, beating their wings against the Aeolian winds, 
they fly off together, reunited in love and guided by the winking light of the morning star. And that's our show for this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and especially for your patience over the past couple of weeks as we've dealt with some of these technical issues. I've updated the show calendar on the website. You can see what's coming up in between now and the end of the year by going to findyourgods.com episodes. We'll be back in two weeks with our next episode, and maybe we'll find time next week to fit in a dark episode in between the two. Until then, thank you for listening. Take care of each other, and may your gods bless you. Find Your Gods is written, performed, and produced by T.M. Camp. Now you know who to blame. The contents of this show are copyright 2016, T.M. Camp, and may not be copied, transcribed, transmitted, or otherwise reproduced without his express written permission. Failure to comply is a violation of international copyright law, and violators will be severely punished over the long years as they watch one by one each of their loved ones slowly back step by step into the rising sea until they are left alone on an empty shore. Visit us online at findyourgods.com and join in the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com slash findyourgods. You can also bother us on Twitter at Find Your Gods, and we're even on Instagram, Tumblr, and Pinterest, because honestly, isn't everyone? <laughs>